Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easy in Context. And today on the broadcast, I have a paint and body work specialist, a pilot, a proficient horse, do you say horseman or horsewoman these days, a skydiver, an art teacher, a person who owns a watercolor business, a mom and a grandma. Also, Karen Pence is a former congressional spouse, first lady of Indiana, second lady of the United States. She worked as a school teacher for more than 30 years. She started her watercolor business along the way. We'll talk about that. She's married. They've got three adult children, three daughter and sons-in-law. And how many grandkids now, Karen? Great. Three. Yeah. Aren't they the best? They are the best, Michael. I mean, <laughs> oh my gosh. I really do absolutely love being a grandma. <laughs> have you seen the bumper sticker that says, have grandchildren first? That's smart. I wish I could have done that. <laughs> Our Hannah has three here locally, so we're very blessed. They currently live in the Zionsville, Indiana area. Those of you will know the last name, but you may not know Karen Pence, married to Mike. We've been friends since 1993. When did y'all first come to D.C.? Four? No, we came in 2000. Two? Yeah. Wait, for Congress, really? Yeah. Oh, goodness. Okay. I went in 92 or three, so that's all I know. I don't know where I am anymore. I have to show our friends a picture, though, and you may not remember this. You were teaching art (laughs) at Emanuel, and my son, Devin, I want to say he was in third grade, perhaps, maybe fourth. I think that was fourth. That's a fourth grade project. And yeah, and you gave him what? Was it two colors or three colors? What yeah. was the criteria? Yeah. yeah, I think it was just two colors. Yeah. He had never seen Aspen, to my knowledge. Did you have an Aspen picture up there? We did. We had lots of different ones up that they could look at. Got yeah. it. Got it. Well, he came home with this and he was like nonchalant about it. And I made color copies of it and framed it. <laughs> there are very few kids' memories that have this been such a treasure, but you taught my son. Yeah, that's great. And he was quite the artist, actually. Oh, he yeah. Was no, he really very was. Very yeah. good. Yeah, he was. Well, thanks for jumping on the podcast with us. You have published a new book, and I have to tell our listeners, I don't want people to ever think like we're shilling authors or telling people you have to buy this or you should buy this or whatever. But this is a book I I would encourage folks to get when it's your time to serve. So the book drops today anywhere you can purchase a book online or if you happen to have a bookstore still standing where you live. I read through these chapter titles first, Karen, because I always like to see where an author is going and Part of me sees the artist in you. Part of me sees the creativity ooze off the page. But you start out with a story about bees. Before we jump into some of the details, give folks a, a sample of this. You were in a, a governor's wife wife's uh, meeting, and the governor from Arkansas's wife was? She actually decided to do a presentation for governor's spouses. And, you know, when you're a governor's spouse, you have four years maybe eight, but it's a short amount of time. And day one, you've hit the ground running. So in order to come alongside other spouses in the same situation, the National Governors Association has a meeting in Washington every February where we share ideas. Ginger Beebe of Arkansas actually gave a presentation about how she had gotten a B-5 installed at the governor's residence. And I thought that was a great idea. And so we did the same thing. One of the great things about honey is that honey doesn't spoil. 
And so yeah. it's a great gift for us to give visitors to the governor's residence. We have these little tiny honey bears and a little watercolor on the front of it that I had done of the governor's residence. And that's when my fascination with bees began. And I started to learn more and more about bees as the years went on, especially in my service as not only first lady, but then second lady of the United States. Mm -hmm. In Middle Tennessee, where we live, bees are huge because of the demands for pollination and crops and all sorts of things, which I didn't realize until we moved here. And I guess there's debate on whether they're in trouble or not, too. Is that correct? Well, and so I knew that, you know, that was a, an area that, thank you, Michael, yeah. I don't like to get into. <laughs> because, <laughs> because it's political. People have strong yeah, of opinions. Of course. You know. I know. And I don't know. Okay. I'm not a scientist. So I just started sharing about the bees. And the great thing was, when we went to the vice president's residence, the first thing I asked was, is there a beehive? Because the White House has a beehive. And so I just assumed that we would have one, and there wasn't one. And so that is one of the first things that we did. And nice. it was a great thing to do as we traveled really the world, because everywhere we went, we kind of added on a little bee trip to kind of see what different countries, different states do with their bees. And it was fascinating because everywhere I went, I learned so much about God in studying the yeah. bees, yeah. to know that these little bees have so much between their wingspan was yeah. just fascinating to me. I've read a little bit about it and thought for a minute about doing it, but decided differently. But let's talk about you and not bees. Okay. But you use this as a sort of a an outline or a metaphor for the book, which I thought was brilliant. Again, folks don't know much about your story, probably, other than your sphere of influence. But I remember meeting you and Mike in the 2000s uh, when you were in D.C. and going to lunch with Mike, and I think he might have just gotten in his congressional office and went up there and had the, you know, had the Navy bean soup and all that stuff. And what caught my attention was that plaque that said, no flapping. Yeah. And I was delighted to see you tell the story in the book. You ran twice for Congress and did not succeed, and then you ran a third time. So let's just fast forward to that story, if you don't mind, about sure. no flapping. You know, the first two times we ran, we didn't have kids, we were young, and really it was a wonderful thing that we didn't win. We were very arrogant, very full of ourselves, mm. and we wouldn't have done any good for anybody. And God knew that. And so he humbled us, and it was a good thing. And then when the opportunity came up again, by this time Mike had a radio show, statewide radio show. We were settled. We just built our dream home. We had three small kids. I just had started my watercolor business. I mean, we were settled and, you know, we, we were comfortable. But I found that when you're comfortable, that's usually when God puts <laughs> your life in a blender <laughs> and says, no, you're too comfortable, Karen. And so people had been approaching us saying, hey, it's an open seat. Do you guys want to run for Congress again? Mike's name ID was sky high because he was on the radio. People knew his opinions. He knew all of the donors. And so we really had to make a decision if we were going to do this again. And it was a big sacrifice this time because now we were settled. We had children now. And that was something we really had to consider. 
And I surprised Mike with a trip to Colorado to a dude ranch for his 40th birthday. And we had to decide. We were coming to the point where we've got to decide, like, today, are we doing this? And we took a ride up to the top of a mountain, and we just sat on the side of a bluff and tied the horses up. And it just said, you know, we've got to figure out what we're going to do. And so at that moment, these two hawks were kind of rising on the wind, and they were just rising. And Mike is kind of a romantic, and he said, oh, those two hawks are like us. And I said, well, if those two hawks are like us, then I think we should run. But this time, we should do it like the hawks. And we should step off this cliff and open our wings. And if God decides to lift us up, then that's his will. But we're not going to flap. No flapping. So we're not going to try and have ambition drive us. We're going to make ourselves available to God. And so the no flapping story has really made the rounds over the years. All of our staff hear that story because... We don't want them to be arrogant and, you know, boastful and and trying to have an agenda. We just want to be used by God. We have a mutual friend who's had a successful storied career in politics. And years ago, he was on a podcast and I asked him, can you run for office without being self-promoting? And it was the only time he was quiet for a second. He had to think about the answer. (laughs) So on the one hand, you have to be yourself. You have to be Mike and Karen, but you have to extol what you believe in. Right. It's a fine line, though. You know, someone told us once there are two types of people in Washington, those who are called and those who are driven. Hmm. And we were driven the first couple of times, and now it's more of a calling. So you spend 12 years as a congressional wife, a congressional spouse, Mike decides to run for Indiana for governor. And mm-hmm. I remember we had a wonderful lunch talking about what's next for Mike Pence. Yeah. And when he decided to do that, it was fun to uh, cheer you guys on and pray for you on the sidelines. And then we got to go to the inaugural event. It was a highlight for Cindy and me. We'd moved to Nashville by then. You went through it in Indiana. Perhaps, is it fair to say, more difficult than the years is in Congress? You know, I think anytime you're in public office, you're a target. And that's part of it. And I don't want to say you ever get used to it, but you learn how to manage, you know, attacks. But it really was from day one, you know, day one, Mike started getting attacked. It's a story that I don't have in the book, but it's Danny the deer. There was this little deer that a family had adopted and had a fence around it. And it just became a whole tumultuous story because you're not allowed to do that in Indiana. You can't have a deer as a pet. And so it just became a huge story that kind of followed us for a while. But there were those kinds of stories every week. Every week, there's something that you're you're kind of having to put the fire out. Young people today watch what's happening. They watch what happens to anyone who runs for office, and it's pretty distasteful. Maybe it's always been that way, but social media and the division of the country, it seems like it's a lot more vitriolic. If that's true, and it may not be, there's some young student in college, and he or she, they're thinking about running for office. Your book's a great gift to them, but at high level, Karen, what would you tell 
a 26-year-old Karen Pence, knowing this was her future? Well, you know, it's easy to sit on the sidelines and not jump in. And that's kind of the message I wanted to portray through my book is that when it's your turn to serve, don't be afraid to accept God's challenge. Because if I had chosen to not serve, think of all the blessings that I would have missed. You know, our verse for our very first campaign was, those that cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. So we don't want to make our comfortable life an idol. I could still be in that same house, you know, where we had built our dream home. And I'm sure God would have, you know, blessed us there as well. But because we were able to answer his call, he took us places we never thought he would go. And grew us as children of God and helped us become the people that we are today. So in the book, I tell lots of different little stories about don't be afraid to serve when God is calling you. But you also have to be careful that you don't say yes to everything. I'm sure you've seen that, Michael, in ministry. You can't say yes to everything. And I do tell a story in there where my Bible study fellowship lead teacher was encouraging mm-hmm. me to lead a small group, and she just really knew this was God's will for me. <laughs> and Mike and I talked about it and prayed about it. At that time, our kids were one, two, and three. And I said, you know, that's not my calling, right? My calling is Michael, Charlotte, and Audrey. And I have to be the best mom for them right now. And I can't lead a small group. I don't have that kind of energy So you have to discern, try and figure out what God is calling you to and what he's not calling you to. But I do just encourage the reader. It's it's meant to be a very encouraging book to kind of look at your own life and say, oh, well, you know, maybe maybe I'm supposed to be the block leader, you know, for our Mm. neighborhood picnic. It might not be second lady of the United States, but God uses us, you know, where he calls us. Cindy and I look at our lives as chapters, and we often talk about, you know, from Texas to Virginia to Chicago to Tennessee and multiple houses along the way, because I'm married to a realtor, so I get to live where she tells me. (laughs) But it's each chapter is, there is a, a literal and metaphorical turning the page. We all have regrets, we all have disappointments, but you have to turn the page. And there's no point looking back going, I wish this, I wish that, because all I have is today and hopefully a plan for tomorrow. And reading your book, I got the sense that you're pretty good at turning chapters. Well, I I think so. I'm pretty good at going wherever God takes us. If I kind of have an idea where we're headed, I'm not as good when I get surprises. (laughs) And so I'm working on that, and he's helping me work on that too. But yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things in the book is that I want people to feel like they can step out and and go to the next chapter, as you're saying. You know, for us, it was like, okay, we're leaving Virginia and heading back to Indiana. So we were saying goodbye to all of those friends and starting something very different in Indiana from what we had known in Indiana. So every step of the way, it's, you know, there's the unknown. And that's where I think God calls us to trust him. And we just have to say, I'm yours. Yeah, faith is that confident assurance of things hoped for with the conviction of things not yet seen. I think the latter part, we have 
trouble with that. Let me just say, as an overarching thing, the book is so readable. It's just a mm-hmm. joy to read it. So I, I think folks will find, forget the politics, because you really don't get into that. I it's really don't. Just, right. It's the story of how you navigated these opportunities and, okay, God, we're going to serve you here. Okay, we're going to serve you there. I know it's probably indelicate to say today, but Cindy would be a case in point. Home is the haven. And you all moved 18 times, if I remember correctly. So far. <laughs> so, yeah, and counting. Uh, it's like the military, you know, when they yeah. sign up to serve. I mean, some of our friends, mutual friends, have moved 20 sometimes in as many years of a career. But there is that, and I hate to over-spiritualize it, the higher call that I'm going to do this, and God will carry me. And to your point, things you got to experience my word, those are stories you could write four more books on. Talk a little bit about the idea of moving and being a mom, because this is true for anyone, whether they're being a representative or married to a representative or just transitions in life. Well, a couple of things I've talked through in the book are, first of all, we struggled with infertility for six years, yeah. and then all of a sudden we had three kids in three years. So for us... All I ever wanted was to be a mom, and I couldn't understand why God wasn't bringing us children. I mean, that's all I wanted. I didn't want anything else. And so when we finally had our family, I wasn't going to let outside influences rob us of the joy that that family life can bring. And so we had lots of little rules that we tried to stick to. I tell stories about the kids going back to Indiana with Mike on the weekends to campaign with him, maybe one at a time. We talk about how, you know, he had to put his phone away when he walked in the door at night because it was so distracting. We also just didn't let that outside political world come into our home. And when Mike became governor, our kids gave me a present. And I tell this story in the book. It was election night, and it was very late, and we were having our celebration party in Lucas Oil Stadium, where the Colts play, and we were up in the suite that the Lucas family has, and with some of our family and close supporters, and it was time for us to go down to the stage and accept victory, and the kids said, wait a minute, we've got something for you guys. And so we went into the bathroom. It's the only place where we could have a little privacy. (laughs) And I knew they had a gift for Mike. And I didn't know they had a gift for me. And so they gave me this little frame that had three sections to it, you know, one of those little fold-out frames. And in each one, they each had written their favorite momism. And our son Michael's was... I'm not going to let what's going on out there affect what's going on in here. And Charlotte's was, you teach your kids how to follow their dreams by fighting for yours. And Audrey's was, I hear you and I'm listening. Wow. But Michael's was the one, we're not going to let that affect what's going on in here. And I think that's one thing God has helped us to be successful at, keeping that life away from inside our home. You know, I'm, I'm kind of with Michael, though. I think he should have adopted that boy so the poor guy would have had a brother. 
I know. I know. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Devin, Devin had the same lament that he didn't have a brother and Sarah <laughs> didn't have a little sister. You know, that's what it is, right? That's what it is. What is it about a residence versus a home? Yeah, that's a great question. And for us, you know, every time we moved, I tried to get all the pictures up the first week. Yeah. Someone had given me a book, actually, when we moved to Virginia. And it was called, I don't even know who wrote it, but I remember it's called After the Boxes Are Unpacked. And I hadn't painted our kitchen in our home in Virginia. And I said, well, you know, we run every two years. So, you know, we might not be here in two years. Why do it? Yeah. Why paint the kitchen? And when I finally painted the kitchen, made sure all the boxes were unpacked, that's when I was able to kind of put down roots in that community. We still had our home in Indiana. It was a little home that we bought. It wasn't really where our kids had been raised to that point, but it was a small house in Mike's hometown. I will tell you, one of the hardest parts for me about serving at a higher level of first lady and second lady was that the the residence was not ours, you know, and there were guards all the time and there were people around all the time. And I think when we came back home after the 2020 election, we bought a home and it's where I am right now. And it is wonderful having a home again. That's where we live. It's it's our stuff, you know, and it's a lot different than just having a house, even though those homes were beautiful. Sure. I mean, you know, mansions, but really, it never really felt quite like our home. Mm-hmm. I had talked to Mike not long after y'all moved back to Indiana, and and he said in his you know typical laugh that he does, he said, you know, we're Mike and Karen, and we're home. And that warmed my heart. You know, it's like, yeah. goodness, after all that y'all have been through and those tumultuous really five years, the year of running, and then, you know, four years in the White House. And the, it's like, wow, that's great for you to have that respite. Then, of course, things continue to change, right? <laughs> Let's talk about your interest in, in art and art therapy, because, I mean, that's really your story. Would you say that that's the way you think is artistically and creatively and problem solving? And Well, it's funny because I, I never took an art class till college, and I majored in elementary education, and they told us, hey, you should have a minor, whether it's reading specialist or maybe a Spanish teacher or music or art, something that is kind of a backup for you in case you can't get a job teaching in the classroom. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do art. That sounds like a lot of fun. And I had never had an art class before. Wow. And I found that I loved it. I absolutely loved art. And I didn't take a watercolor class until Michael was born. And Monday nights, I went out to this woman's home who taught art and she taught watercolor. Mike was on baby duty. And it was the most wonderful experience because there would be maybe 20 of us in the class and she would serve us a snack and she would read to us about a famous artist and she had classical music playing. And wow. I just felt like, for that time each week, someone was kind of nourishing me 
And it was just wonderful. And I loved painting. And I realized that watercolor was something I took to right away. And then when I came to Virginia, that was the position that I was able to teach was art and loved it. Taught for 15 years at Emanuel. One of the things I learned when I was first lady, I started learning about art therapy, which is not arts and crafts. You have to have a master's or doctorate level degree. You're basically a therapist who uses art. And what we found with people with PTSD, children with cancer, which is where I got started with it, is that the side of the brain that's injured in trauma is the verbal side. And so Hmm. a lot of times the client can't talk about what they're feeling and what we've learned is, is that art kind of breaks through and the client wants, like maybe they'll be working with clay and they'll say, oh, that's my nightmare. That's mm. exactly what I see every night when I go to bed. Then they can go through the therapy. And so it was such an unknown therapy that very few people knew anything about that I decided when I was second lady, especially, I wanted that to be something that I focused on. I ran across a, a jazz artist that I like. She has terrible accident as a child. And through long story short, psychiatrists and drugs and all sorts of therapies, one of her counselors said, what did you do before you had the accident? And she said, well, I liked music. And he just looked at her and said, go play something for me next time. Go write something for me. And that's unlocked a pretty uh, powerful jazz career for her and it just it brings a fascinating thing is it not it is now you move this into the military is that because of the pts i started out with art therapy being my only initiative i had met with melania and she said she was only going to have one initiative and so i thought okay i mean i had many things i did as first lady of indiana but i thought i'm not going to upstage so we're just going to focus on art therapy But then about a year into Mike being vice president, veterans groups were approaching me and I really didn't want to focus just on veterans. And so I started learning about some of the issues that our military spouses face. And that became my second initiative that I focused on. And so while we were doing military spouse initiatives, visiting spouses on bases and posts, we would also go and see the art therapist that was working with the the men and women who were experiencing trauma. It's just something that I think both you and Mike have have characterized as a love for the military and a lot of behind the scenes that people will never see or won't be used for an ad campaign. It's been just a real ministry to me to watch you guys serve those who serve because they don't get paid much. They don't get accolades. And now they're under such scrutiny for every little thing. It's a a great blessing, I think, for you to continue to care about them. Talk about your kids getting married, because children getting married in any family system where there's powerful or successful or accomplished people, it's a different deal. Well, for us, it's been really kind of a funny story, because Michael got engaged to Sarah. They had gone to Purdue together. And they had decided they wanted an October wedding. There is a beautiful state park in Indiana that's in the southern hills, and it's just beautiful in the fall. And they had planned everything. October wedding, all set, 
they got engaged in April. This is going to be an October wedding the next year. Perfect. Plans all done. All set. But Michael was going to be stationed. He's a Marine. And so he was going to be stationed in Mississippi. And they were like, you know what? We just want to get married so Sarah can go with him. And he said, you know, Mom, I have a dangerous career. He's a pilot. And he said, I want to be married. I want Sarah to be taken care of if anything happens to me. And so we said, great. So they decided they wanted to do a December wedding. And of course, this was right after Mike had gotten elected <laughs> vice president, but we were still in the governor's residence. And so we just had a very small ceremony in the living room at the governor's residence. It was just immediate family. That's it. They saved all the special things from the wedding for their October wedding, which they still went ahead and had. So they didn't do toast. They didn't do the dance, the, you know, first song, anything like that. But they did get married in December, December 28th. So then we had their wedding in October when Mike was vice president. Then at their wedding, Charlotte met Henry, who was a Navy pilot, a friend of Michael's. It wasn't until like the next September, almost a year later, oh, wow. that Henry called Charlotte up and said, you know, I'd, I'd like to come see you. And really, they fell in love right away. And they got engaged then that July. And then they got married in December, the same date as Michael, oh, no. <laughs> and, Michael and Sarah, because <laughs> it was the same thing. Henry knew I'm going to be deployed it probably in March. And so we want to get married. And so they got married at the Naval Academy Chapel. And then they had their reception at the vice president's residence. Well, Audrey, meanwhile, had already gotten engaged in between those two. <laughs> and she had dated her husband now for a long time in college. And they had decided Audrey did not want anything to do with the, you know, vice president's residence. She did not want to get right. married in Washington. She did not want a reception in Washington. So she wanted something far away. And so she chose a destination wedding, but it was COVID. Oh boy. So poor Audrey and Dan rescheduled their wedding three or four times. And after I think maybe the second time, they just said, look, we want to get married. We have to keep pushing this off and we just want to get married. And they actually got married just on the street in front of the courthouse in Washington, D.C. Mike officiated. Audrey's an attorney. She had arranged to be able to sign her own wedding certificate. <laughs> and that was their wedding. But then they went ahead the next July and had their actual wedding that they had already paid. Right. It already was completely paid for in Hawaii. So we actually had five weddings. <laughs> <laughs> during that time with three kids. <laughs> so when folks read that chapter, it's not bad math. There's a reason for all <laughs> yeah, this. So, that's yeah, right. yeah. so when you look back on, I know this is an unfair question because you get asked it and there's 25 that pop in your head immediately. So I'll give you two or three, two or three of the greatest lessons that you've learned when you're called to serve God's grace sustaining you, but there's got to be some standouts that go, and I'm sure, in a way, every chapter is, but two or three, maybe, if you'd elaborate on a little bit. Well, I think one of the things that I learned was that if you make yourself available, 
to God, he, he's going to give you the grace that you need. For me, when I became First Lady, I remember meeting with a college president right away after I became First Lady in Indiana. And I really wasn't comfortable with people saying First Lady Karen, First Lady. And I was like, whoa, I'm just Karen. And he had a great little chat with me. And he said, Mrs. Pence, I get it because I just became a college president. But he said, it's not you, it's the position. And God has chosen you to wear this mantle right now. And if you poo-poo it or say, oh, no, it's nothing, you're diminishing that moment for people who get to meet you. And so you need to wear the mantle and accept the mantle so that when you meet with people or you give them awards or something, you're, you're elevating them. And it was such a great lesson for me to learn. And then God did really provide opportunities. You know, there's a big luncheon every year in Washington. It's called the First Ladies Luncheon, and it's put on by the Congressional Club. So all of the congressional spouses do this fabulous lunch in Washington and raise money for charity. And they invite the First Lady at the time, but it's it's really special. They have custom tablecloths and gift bags and surprise entertainer. And one of the ladies who had helped with that is named Patty Coons, and she lives in Indiana. And she kept telling me, Karen, you've got to do a First Lady's Luncheon. And I quit taking her calls because I said, Patty, I'm not going to give a luncheon for myself. This doesn't make any sense. Meanwhile, all of these groups were coming to me saying, would you champion our cause? Would you speak at this? Would you do this? And I realized I could kind of marry the two. Hmm. So I started the luncheon and we raised, I think, $1.2 million over three years that we did this luncheon. And we started a foundation called the Indiana First Ladies Charitable Foundation. And we gave awards of $500 or $1,000 to charities all over Indiana. And it was a way to kind of take this opportunity to serve and find a way to bless others in doing so. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I found, Michael, is that, you know, here I was in this position and I wanted to be a good steward. I wanted to do a lot, but with all these people coming at me, it was overwhelming. But God provided an avenue for me to take Patty's advice about this luncheon and also bless all of these counties all over the state. I used a phrase about exploiting the opportunities God gives Mm -hmm. you because hopefully it's a good humility side of us. It can't always be about me, but it's the people in your case who voted for you or whom you represent. And I think it's the same for the local church. You know, this isn't my church always makes my, uh, hair on the back of my neck go up and a pastor says, my church. I go, no, this isn't your church, yeah. but I digress. Another one, another lesson you've learned from, you know, maybe a big takeaway. Well, it's funny because when I wrote the book, one of the experiences that I will always treasure was getting to be the representative and, and lead a presidential delegation to the Special Olympics. And I was able to do the winter special games in Austria and then the summer special games in Abu Dhabi. And it was truly the highlight of being second lady 
because when we went to the Winter Games, I tell you this, that it was the highlight because it says that in the book under the one of the watercolors that I gave as a gift to all the participants. But the publisher kept saying, oh, I, I don't think she means the highlight. She means a highlight. And they kept coming back to me. Then the next person who was editing would say, oh, I don't think she means the highlight. And I said, I actually do. I actually do mean the highlight because just picture this. Here are these wonderful young men and women who have worked so hard to excel at their sport. And when we went to Austria, it was rainy. It was freezing rain. There was very little snow. And so we went to this first event skiing and here these young people would come down the hill thrilled just having a ball, the time of their life. And when we went to the closing ceremonies, it was pouring down rain. Every <laughs> single athlete had a clear poncho over their, you know, <laughs> Olympic outfits from their country. Yeah. And they were raising their arms and they were singing and they were celebrating. Our whole delegation just was crying because sure. it was so humbling. We would have all been complaining. Yeah. If we had been in their spot, we would have said, I can't believe this. I trained for four years. This is happening. They weren't like that at all. They absolutely had a ball. There's something about that part of our population that's uh, terrible. We miss it. Now, you subtitled the book, uh, Experiencing God's Grace in His Calling in Your Life. At a principal level, how would you explain that to a person? Maybe they're not going to be a man or woman of notoriety. Maybe they're married to a, a businessman or a woman who teaches school and comes home and you know does laundry, and they go, well, that's great for people that can write a book like Karen Pence. How do they experience God's grace in the dailiness of their life? Well, and that's really what I hope the reader will ask themselves, Michael, because it's not about all the accolades and all of the adventure and all the experiences. The point of telling the experiences is to show that by stepping off that cliff and saying to God, okay, wherever you want to take me, I'm going to go. That's when he blessed me. And blessings aren't necessarily, you know, getting to go to the Special Olympics in Austria. They're the everyday moments. And there are a lot of those everyday moments that we experienced. Even staff people, you know, my first chief of staff as first lady heard me give, and I talk about this in the book, she heard me give a, a talk called Who's on Your Stool? I talk about my kids being on a stool in the kitchen while I'm preparing dinner or being in the car. They don't have to look at me, but they can kind of unload and unburden themselves. And so I asked the question of the audience, who's on your stool? Where are you supposed to be? Who are you supposed to be listening to? Well, I didn't know that my chief of staff ended up quitting after that speech because she said, you know, I think I'm in love with a man back home and I think I need to go see if this is what's supposed to happen. Well, now she's happily married to him. And it worked out great. But it's those little blessings, too, you know, Michael, where where God would take those little moments in the everyday and he will give us the grace. And, you know, I'm not saying that it's easy 
either. It's not easy at any level because, you know, as we had to make the decision of whether or not we were going to enter this presidential race, it was something that I resisted, you know, because I felt like I've given enough. It's 20 years. I'm done. I have grandkids. I have a home now. I'm done. Well, thank God Jesus didn't have that mentality. Thank God he didn't say, I've done enough for you, Karen. I'm not going to die on the cross. I'm done. And I started to feel this conviction. But the grace came when Mike and I decided at the beginning of this year in January, which you'd think after 38 years we would have done this. We had never religiously, and I mean routinely, sat down and read the Bible together every morning. So we got out our one-year Bibles Mm -hmm. and, you know, where you go through the Bible in a year and every day since January 1st, we have sat down and read the Bible through together and prayed together. And that's where God started to change my heart. And Mm. my daughter, Charlotte, helped me with this book. And when I said, Char, I, I just don't know. I just don't know about doing this again, jumping in another race. I thought we were done. And she said, she said, mom, maybe you need to read your book. (laughs) I was like, okay. Okay." Thank you. But he gives you the grace. He gives you the grace every step of the way. And he'll give us the grace if we win. He'll give us the grace if we lose. And he stands with us every step of the way, whether it's, you know, a glamorous life or unglamorous life, whether it's, you know, mowing the lawn, getting satisfaction out of that every day or serving as a soccer coach or whatever it is, whatever he calls us to, he's going to use us in that position and give us the grace. I remember when we moved from uh, Northern Virginia, D.C. to Chicago, and my life was very busy, and I'm calling Cindy, sitting on the Eisenhower trying to drive home and literally sitting bumper to bumper. And I said, so how's your day? She goes, well, I mowed the yard. I wept. I said, here's my wife who used to teach Bible studies with hundreds of women, yeah. had this incredible ministry in Northern Virginia and D.C., and now she's mowing the grass in Elmhurst, Illinois, because her husband took a new job. And she said, no, I don't mean that to make you sad. I said, I know. And she goes, I really love it. I go, no, you don't. It's just because it's a pretty day. <laughs> <laughs> you won't love it when it's hot. <laughs> but I think she mowed the grass about 10 times, and that was it. But point being... <laughs> I think the spouse has the harder job most of the time because they have to pick up the pieces and do the daily stuff that the husband or wife, who might be the base of the effort, they're not in the trenches like that. They're busy and pillar to post and meetings all day long and they're important all day long and they come home and somebody has to take out the trash, right? Exactly who right. Who was that that said, take out the trash, Superman? I can't remember who that was, but anyway. <laughs> Me. <laughs> well, yeah, you should tell the mic next time you see him that, yeah, take out the pra- trash. Well, this new book is available now anywhere you purchase books online or any bookstore. When it's your turn to serve, experiencing God's grace in his calling for your life, Karen Pence, a broadside books and a beautiful little watercolor that I suspect you painted. Well, it's a delight to have you. I talked to you for another hour and a half, but I need to respect your time. And we so appreciate you and Mike and your family. And please greet them all from the Easleys. Thank you, Michael. Tell everybody hello. 
Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.